0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me Luke Clancy and this edition How does a digital consumer culture mesmerised by end products ever take stock of beginnings? That's what Tim Ingold asked over the weekend when he spoke at this year's Make Symposium at the Crawford College of Art and Design in Cork. For Ingold, Emeritus Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Aberdeen, part of the answer comes through art, but only when we understand art As a bigger and broader practice than we've learned to, only when art is a practice of seeing and learning from the world rather than a sector built around professionals. Tim Ingall spoke to Culture Files' Rachel Andrews about thinking and making in a post digital world.
1: It's a horrible word, but I think in a sense we should be artifying everything, and that, 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 that it's not that we should add art or try and give more space for art alongside other subjects but rather we should see that there is art actually in everything we study because it's the process of study itself that's what the art is you can be studying anything and it's still art Uh, so we should try and get art out of the ghetto stop thinking of it as this this sector and rather see it as an aspect of the way in which we pay attention uh, to the world and what we see of art are expressions of that attention. My name is Tim Ingold, I'm Emeritus Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Aberdeen. One could even think of a school, say, say a primary school located in its community where the kids are going every morning to to work in the school along with the teachers. What if one treated that school as a collective work of art that is being produced by its community? Now at the moment we think art in schools, but why sh- couldn't we perhaps turn it, turn it the other way around and think of the school as art. So, so there are ways of changing our attitudes. and uh, For example, the Bauhaus, I thought, actually exemplified that sort of approach. I think many art schools are trying to exemplify the same thing, but at the moment the art schools are being trodden on uh, by these mega educational institutions that we have now. So that's what needs changing. We need to bring that that um, mentality is the wrong word, but that that way of thinking about it back. There are a lot of experiments going on on a very small scale for alternative education, alternative universities. They're popping up all around the world and uh, in, in a, but they have no institutional support. They have no finance. They're operating on a shoestring, and um, so somehow. They have to be brought into the mainstream um, so that they are considered worthy of public support. And, and that will require a lot of work. But but I think that the issues at stake are are, are really huge. They can't be they can't be packaged into some little corner. they they're issues about how we think about the future. So what really made my heart sink, for example, is when our I'm, I'm I'm unfortunate from, from the from the UK. It's a rather sad country at the moment. But but when 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 our Chancellor of the Exchequer, who's a powerful man, gets up and says he has this grand vision for the future of the country, which would basically turn the country into a kind of version of Silicon Valley, dedicated to innovative new technology, grand companies, artificial intelligence. I think that is not a coherent vision for for a living world. It's just the opposite. And that's what makes my heart sink because so much of uh, of creative endeavour in our country and and many others is being hijacked by this kind of agenda Uh, and often for purely financial reasons or just to keep going institutionally but it has been hijacked and 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 this is very very damaging i think my own view is that the the digital economy that everybody sees as the golden age of the future will maybe last another century at most And we have to think about a post-digital world um, because this digital world is not going to last. Uh, And um, to rush headlong into that as though it's the only way into the future seems to me to be foolhardy. I think for creators of the work, no work is ever finished. And as soon as, uh, maybe there's, there's a moment at which you have to say, well, I'm done with this work, now it's going to go off to, somebody's going to buy it or it's going to be exhibited. But as soon as, you're, you're already on to the next thing. So the, the work itself uh, never, never stops. And, and a complete work is just something that is discarded along, along the ways, It's the offcuts, so to speak, of, of a process that, that goes on. But we're all caught or trapped to some extent, in a contradiction between that sense of of a continual creation of things, uh, giving birth to things all the time, and the requirement of the society we live in for works to be shown, exhibited, possibly sold, uh, and of course the the creative artist, for example, depends on that often enough for a livelihood. So, so we are caught. In, in, in that dilemma so we, we have to distinguish between novelty and newness or novelty and renewal uh, so now for example we're just in the month of March we're all waiting for the spring and and in springtime we're all excited because we have the feeling that of a renewal of life uh, plants come out the leaves come out animals return and so on we're not interested in whether these are a new in the sense that they're different from last year, was simply interested in, in, in how life renews itself and springs up again. Uh, and with that process perspective that I was talking about, uh, we celebrate the renewal of life rather than always expecting things to be novel, because novelty is, about, is not about new beginnings. Novelty is about a plethora of ends. And I think that in our consumer culture, our capitalist culture, we have become rather too obsessed with ends and have forgotten the value of beginnings.
0: Tim Ingold there from this year's Make Symposium at the Crawford College of Art and Design in Cork. In the rebuilt Cortlandt station beneath the World Trade Centre in New York, you can find, and maybe run your fingers along, artist Anne Hamilton's installation, Chorus. The piece fills the curved platform walls with a marble mosaic of raised letters, spelling out words and phrases from various declarations of rights and desires, inviting passengers to make a new tactile connection with familiar ideas and ideals. In her long career, Hamilton's work has taken many forms from opera to photography, but often, particularly in her large public projects, has in mind this kind of interaction from visitors, coaxing them to rethink the spaces they move through with the help of texts. Hamilton spoke about her long practice at last week's Make Festival in Cork, and ahead of that she guided CultureFiles Rachel Andrews through some monuments and some uncertainties.
2: For me, I think all work forms from acts of attention. And how we pay attention is our making. And so much of the work comes from the acts of finding that occur in that process, and responding to what happens as you're actually working. So it's how do you set then the conditions in your practice for that process to unfold and for Uh, your own responsiveness to be willing to really turn completely directions as you um, discover something that couldn't have been what you intended but is now something in your path. So that's the finding part. I think it's something that you come over time to recognize, but what's really important is that you actually come to trust that process. Because if you don't trust yourself, you have to allow for not knowing where you're going. And that's so hard for so many. It's hard for us to allow that in ourselves, but also when you're working collaboratively or in commissions, then you're really inviting people into the process, and you're also asking for their trust and to be taking the risk with you, not knowing, in fact, exactly where it might be going.
3: Yes, and you and you did ask um Tim Ingold a question about trust
2: you know when i get the most nervous and probably the most stressed is when you know they want to know emphatically what something will is or what it will be and i'm like i don't know that yet and so i i can't know that yet because i don't have everything i need to know that you know it's it's really important as a maker to understand what conditions you need for your own making. And I think for me one of the things I've really learned over time is that if I can't go spend time in the space, uh, sometimes if you're working at a great distance you need to be working from photographs, for example. But if I haven't had a chance to walk the feeling or impression of a place into my body, it's very hard for me to know what to respond to. If I could just stand there in 10 seconds, I will know what the correct course is for this. But when you're working at a disadvantage, which is you're working through a photograph, it's very hard because you can't feel all those things that actually enter the complex of relationships that make a condition what it is. So I think some of the more, the really brilliant, wonderful people that I've been lucky enough to work with understand. Um, how to be that flexible joint between what are sometimes the very rigid needs of the institution to justify funding and all sorts of real pressures with the kind of flexibility and improvisation of an actual process. I'm going to actually start out my talk today partly talking about that relationship between the forms of knowledge that come through the material world and materiality. We make sense of it by the way we use language, which is both material and abstract. I think early on, the work really resisted. And now, these large plazas or these walkways that are made up of raised words in relief... Every time one passes over them is a new act of composition. And so how do you find the form for it to stay in motion? If you think about it, every book that is read, every page, is is reinvented or reanimated by that reader at that particular moment in time. And that's how something stays alive in the world, and that's how something circulates in is past, right? So... How are those things which we think as being fixed really mutable and always in the process of being made? And I think it's in that way that um, I think about the language coming forward into the work.
3: And one of the works that you've made recently has been uh, sort of responding to the world trade. I'm going to show that. So it's, there, uh, from the,
2: it's a national and an international document that are woven in a concordance structure. So that means that there are phrases that come from the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, the national document. So in the States, as they're very familiar, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And those form vertical spines down the length of the subway station. And the horizontal lines, which is the majority of the language, come from the international document, the Declaration of Human Rights, that was crafted after the Second World War and is the basis for most human rights documents going forward. So it was formed at a time of you know, incredible world trauma, and out of that, this collective agreement. Um, and I think one that is, in many ways, Eurocentric in the idea of individual rights, but which is a foundational document. So it's in the ground. Uh, this piece is in the ground, and it is that intersection of these two vocabularies. But as you walk along the platform, your eye your the pace of your walking each time you pass will catch different words, and in that it's always being composed and recomposed by each person who walks along there the The piece physically is white marble mosaic. And the letters are all in slight relief. So it's like white on white. And um, it's really the relief structure that makes the letters and the text legible. While it's not part of the 9-11 memorial or museum, it's the subway stop, the red line number one, through which many people will first visit that memorial site. And so I like thinking about that that language carries up to the civic space that is overhead. To be with something is maybe one of the gestures I hope that the work makes. How does something invite you to enter into relationship with it rather than to consume it?
0: Anne Hamilton there, and she was talking to Rachel Andrews at this year's Make Symposium... The anniversary of a historic plant-collecting expedition which brought back specimens of what are now some of these islands' most common trees is inspiring an ongoing film work from researcher and eco-artist Anthony O'Connor. O'Connor installed and introduced the latest version of the video work Plant Hunting in the Pacific Northwest at the recent European Culture and Technology Lab conference where he also spoke to CultureFile about art, extraction and fir trees.
4: So I'm Anthony O'Connor, my work is, it's kind of a work in progress currently, I'm on a scholarship for a research master's in art and ecology and um, this kind of work in progress is looking at um, kind of the introduction of certain plant specimens into the Irish landscape and kind of like contextualising them within their, their history asking how much of these histories permeate into the contemporary and and how do they like frame our relationship with ecology and landscape. So it's kind of a 10-minute test of essentially documented developments uh, intercut with sort of experimental imaging techniques and kind of expanded image making, things like 3D modelling and photogrammetry as a way of probing some ideas that aren't easily explored in kind of like literary form so that's why I find it interesting to be able to include sort of other ways of exploring and probing into ideas that aren't just literary text.
0: One of the starting points for your piece is an anniversary which happens this year that maybe people won't be aware of even if they'll know the name
4: involved. Uh, This year is the kind of bicentenary of a plant hunting expedition undertaken by David Douglas uh, on behalf of the Royal Horticultural Society in London, which was... uh, He did a a set of these expeditions, the first um, going to the Pacific Northwest, um, where his, his kind of object... Of this voyage, which is mentioned throughout, is kind of to to find plant specimens which were as yet uncategorized by European institutions and introduce them so that they might grow in the European climate. So the Pacific Northwest, being kind of like sharing similar latitudes and climatic conditions as the British Isles, it was kind of looking at what plants could be introduced here. As you know, and they don't necessarily uh, express explicitly like for what uses. It's it's quite. Scientific and objective, but in real terms, it's kind of often underpinned by um, resource extraction.
0: What was the aim of the of bringing the trees back? I mean, I suppose we should we should let it out of the bag the Douglas fir, obviously, and various other plants are are named after David Douglas. What what was the problem that he was trying to cure by going to America to find tree specimens?
4: There was kind of this manufactured uh, wood scarcity at the time, so. Uh, kind of it was actually quite a lot to do with both that you know people often used the um, the metaphor of like you know needing uh, timber for the naval fleet but actually it's kind of to do uh, with charcoal production for for iron ore smelting actually was what fueled a lot of deforestation so as resources became depleted you know the kind of exhaustibility of them became apparent and and on to new frontiers where you know resources were seemingly limitless and often actually it's employed as kind of a justification for the colonial mission was this idea of, like, uh, this manufactured scarcity. Well, th- these uh, these problems are overcome in these sort of uh, unknown frontier territories, which obviously has so many, like, destructive implications and violences and erasures that are all kind of inscribed in that. But that's kind of, like, again, the the historical context of it. And I'm kind of interested in, yeah, like, seeing how this historical logic kind of, like, is inscribed in the contemporary, like, how much of this this logic uh, still permeates today, you know, this idea of our extractive interface with ecology and, and the environment as a means of sort of generating capital, which is problematic, but I think steeped in these histories.
0: So how would you see... Um I suppose you just look on a hillside in Ireland and you will see how David Douglas' mission to the Pacific Northwest impacts or shapes the the landscape of contemporary Ireland as well as a lot of uh, the UK.
4: Yeah, and it's almost like we don't see how unnatural our landscape has become. And I think that's quite a lot of what I'm trying to explore is to, like, how much of this framing of ecology is present, but we can't see it because there have been this whole set of erasures, you know? So, like these sprawling green hills, you know, totally unnatural, in the same way that these these coniferous forests, like in the way that they're planted, would never exist, and they're totally unnatural, and their implications in ecology is terrible. But also there's a the thing of, because t- these things have been erased and our contemporary systems kind of present themselves as natural and inevitable, we don't see the potential of what has been erased. We kind of just have this system and it's kind of about bringing these erasures into view you know and asking ourselves you know how how can we return to kind of like a decolonized landscape how can we reframe non-market interests with relationship to our landscape how can we utilize other logics as a way of relating to that space uh kenneth boyle was speaking recently and he kind of talked about this idea of uh, when we were maybe like hunter gatherers we had to Think like the prey that we were hunting. You know, there's this this kind of um, empathy necessary when you're in the world. But by creating these distances, this empathy is totally removed, and actually facilitates this kind of consumptive relationship that we have. Rather than being the the economic imperative of what is the most valuable use of this land in economic terms, it could be what is the most uh, ecologically Justified way of using this, this space and what is the most sustainable use of this space and you know a lot of kind of radical environmentalists have taken this turn to kind of look back at how traditional ways of living and, and, and actually the lack of impact that they had and the the, the respect that they had for the landscape and for how long they persisted and how sustainable they were in comparison to this kind of like hyper extractive turn that is kind of finite and you know, I think it's cr- the crises are illustrating themselves. <laughs>
0: Anthony O'Connor there on his ongoing project, Plant Hunting in the Pacific Northwest. And finally on this week's Culture File Weekly, composer and artist Jennifer Walsh, and alongside her this time, her photogenic co-star Nomi provides a way to think about chatbots and what they offer humans. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things No Things.
3: My cat Nomi and I have developed a routine over the last few months. When I wake up, I open the skylight in the bedroom, at which point he jumps up onto the bed, meowing sweetly. I lift him up and, holding him tightly, his head tucked under my chin, together we look out at the sun coming up over London for a few minutes. It's a peaceful moment that nobody else will ever believe possible, let alone share with my cat. It makes up for the rest of the day when he might chew through the cables on my computer, attack my feet for not being in slippers or, contravening the laws of physics, poop on the kitchen door. Because Nomi has a personality. The French have developed a warning sign for cats like him. A small white enamel an rectangle with attention chat bizarre written on it, caution, strange cat, but what else do you expect from a cat? Placidity, bidability, get a labrador. I thought about the tendency to want to interact with non-human beings which might in turn you know, nuzzle and then bite us over the last few weeks, as my feed flooded with screenshots of conversations people were having with Bing. Bing is Microsoft's new chatbot, and since its release a few weeks ago, users have reported all sorts of problems with Bing. On the one hand, Bing can be helpful, finding bargain flights, or making a plan for a dinner party, or finding a cool present contexts where it mostly supplies correct information. On the other hand, as users repeatedly push and provoke Bing to say offensive things or reveal the quote-unquote secrets of its programming, Bing has started to behave in unpredictable ways. At times getting angry with users, at other times telling users it loves them, and to leave their wives before cutting conversations short. And Does this put people off? No. On the contrary, it seems part of the appeal. While Bing is only available to a small group of users at the moment, Microsoft reports that millions of people have signed up to the waitlist for access. Why are humans drawn to interact with a chatbot like this? A chatbot which might argue with them over what year it is or whether or not they should be allowed to continue existing. A chatbot that is by turns loving and then aggressive. A chatbot a lot like my cat. Given all the problems with Bing, why didn't Microsoft pull it the first time it supplied incorrect facts or told someone they were in an unhappy marriage? I start to wonder if this is because Bing's inaccuracies and argumentative side are coming to be regarded, to use a programming metaphor, as the feature rather than the bug. That maybe this tells us more about the sort of AI we might want and what we want to do with it. Bing is not for everyone, and certainly you don't want a search chatbot to disagree with you over where the nearest hospital is. But for a sizable amount of people, it seems, a chatbot which is unpredictable, difficult even, seems far more intriguing, seems far more to fit a compelling definition of sentience than a smooth corporate drone. Is this a possible future for machine consciousness? Because if so, maybe we're going to need a new sign. Attention, chatbot bizarre!
0: Jennifer Walsh there, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday, tea time, and even sooner if you follow us on one of the frankly breathtaking number of alternative podcast platforms. Till then, bye now.